0: I invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1 uh, this morning, Hebrews chapter 1. We are going to start a new study in the book of Hebrews this morning. Uh, last week we had the privilege of working through an introduction to the book, and I'll talk more about that in a moment. But today we get to start at Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, and uh, we're going to be doing this for several months. I hope you're ready. You Ready? Get into the Word together. All right, great. Uh, some of you really encouraged me this week. You, you, you told me you bought that ESV scripture journal I talked to you about. Some of you have bought that, and you have it. You're ready. You, you're using it, and your devotions are ready. So you're telling Some of you told me what you've been doing and reading through Hebrews. That's exciting and thrilling. If you take notes, uh, there is a handout in the bulletin. That might help you as well. Take notes and at least follow my train of thinking as I work through the text of Hebrews chapter 1. Now, before we get into the text today, I'll just make one confession to you. I tremble to speak this passage to you. I mean, I'm not just saying that either. Uh, Anytime I come to a passage that talks about the deity of Jesus Christ and his humanity in Hebrews chapter 1, the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ, I tremble. I remember reading several years ago in seminary a book called God Became Flesh, Written by Millard Erickson, he's a systematic theologian. And in this book, it's, it's, it's this massive book which talks about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God becoming man in Jesus. And in the book, near the beginning I think it was, he identified 26 different incarnational heresies. 26 different incarnational heresies. And, and it's always my prayer, as much study as I do in every, for, for every one of these sermons, it's always my prayer, Father, Please help me not to make a mistake when it comes to the deity of Jesus Christ. So I come trembling before you as a student uh, of the word myself, uh, attempting to know more about our wonderful Savior Jesus Christ. As we get into Hebrews chapter 1 in the introductory sermon last week, I said the book is laid out like a sermon, like a good sermon. Uh, I think that originally it may have been a sermon. The author of Hebrews gives a word of exhortation, and then he writes it in an epistle. And so, uh, like any good sermon, uh, his book will start with doctrine and proceed to warning. As a matter of fact, five times in the uh, epistle to the Hebrews, he rotates back and forth from doctrine to warning, doctrine to warning, doctrine to warning. Again, like a good sermon, he uncovers truth, and then he presses for a decision. He presses for change in his hearers. The author is addressing Jewish professing believers in Jesus Christ. I think they're located in the city of Rome just before and during the great persecution on Christians that would take place in the 60s A.D. These professing believers in Jesus Christ were facing challenges and persecution and are tempted to walk away from Jesus Christ. They're tempted to join their relatives to go back to Judaism, which would protect them in sorts, but the author of Hebrews will use doctrine and warning to tell them, you cannot go back to the old covenant. You cannot go back to Judaism. It has no saving value for you. You must trust in the blood of Jesus Christ, which will cleanse your consciences from evil works. And so as we come to this passage today, we start into doctrine the doctrinal point. This section, first section, goes from Hebrews 1, 1 to Hebrews 2, 4. Hebrews 1, 1 to Hebrews 2, 4. The section of doctrine is Hebrews 1. The warning is Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. As the author of Hebrews gets into this, he he doesn't have a a formal introduction like many of the epistles. Uh, He kind of just gets right after it. And, I don't know how wise it would be for us to speculate why he does that. It may be because it was originally a sermon. He just got right into the sermon. Or uh, perhaps it could be that he just wants to get to the focus of his argument. The focus of his argument is Jesus. So he gets right to Jesus uh, in verses 1 through 4. In the first chapter of Hebrews, uh, I, I think it, we have the author giving us a two-fold doctrinal proposition. It could be Summarized very simply, and we'll ex- expound on it as we go along. A two-fold doctrinal explanation. The first part is Jesus is better than the prophets, verses 1 through 4. And then in verses 5 through 14, Jesus is better than angels. So in chapter 1, we are gonna, we're going to consider three agents of God's self-disclosure, his revelation to mankind. Three agents, the son, prophets, and angels. And as we do this, uh, I I think what the author of Hebrews is going to do is he shows us, he makes an argument for one of them being the greatest agent of God's self-disclosure to mankind. In businesses, sometimes, Businesses will award or give honors to those who are the greatest agent or employee for a period of time. Maybe, you know, employee of the month, employee of the year, greatest agent for a certain time. In chapter 1, the author of Hebrews considers three agents of God's revelation to mankind, and he exalts the Son as the greatest agent of God's divine revelation. Let's go through this, verses one through four. We'll see first his comparison to prophets. So we have revelation for prophets and son, and it starts in verse one with God speaking through the prophets in the distant past. Look in verse one with me. The Bible says, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Here, God communicated to Israel through different ways, different times long ago. The phrase long ago indicates, uh, I think, a period of time that starts at least at creation, if not before, and through the entire Old Testament era. And so God has revealed himself long ago, during that time period, in a progressive way to humanity, especially Israel. But his revelation was fragmentary until the time of Christ. The text says in verse 1 that God spoke, and he used many different modes or ways in speaking to the prophets. He used things like a still small voice, a burning bush, cloud, a donkey, visions, dreams, theophanies, oracles, and he spoke in other phenomenal ways as well to the prophets, and they conveyed it to the fathers of Israel. The text also says that many different times this happened in the past, and I I like what Robert Gramacchi observes. He says it took about 1,000 years to produce the authoritative canon of Israel from the ministry of Moses to that of Malachi, 1400 B.C. to 400 B.C. Basically, many different times. So God speaks to Israel in different ways and different times and the author makes uh, his point about the diversity of revelation through the prophets, I think here, in a very powerful way. Now, I wish I could capture this for you like the original portrays in verse one. Verse one in the original has 12 words. Okay. Every major word of those 12, every word that's not a conjunction or like an article or something, they all start with the Greek letter pi. That is, these five words, the five words out of the 12, all start with the letter P in English for us. So uh, the words um, Uh, The the words long ago, many times, many ways, fathers and prophets all begin with the letter pi. The author of Hebrews is showing his rhetorical skill to us here, and he he first just paints us, you know, long ago in many ways, many different times, God did reveal himself to the, the fathers through the prophets. Okay, so... That's the first agent of revelation he will give to us here. But then in verses two through four, he moves on. In verses two through four, he says, "God has more recently spoken to us to us through His Son." So after making that strong rhetorical point with those words in verse one, the author finishes out a, a sentence. Verses two through four, actually one through four, it's all one sentence. And it's in verse 2 as it begins that we actually come across his main thought. Look at verse 2. But in these last days, and here's the only independent clause in the whole sentence He has spoken to us by His Son. Okay, that's the main point of verses 1 through 4. He has spoken to us. Through his son. Everything else in verses one through four somehow, in some way, modifies that one clause. God has spoken to us in a son. And so let's look at what the rest of the text says. It says, First, he has done this in these last days. When I come across that phrase, in these last days, in the New Testament, this phrase includes the time of Christ's life his exaltation, and it runs the whole way to the end, to the final subjugation of everything. So in these last days includes Christ's exaltation and the final subjugation of all things. So in these last days, God has spoken to us through his Son. Like one of the observations the old commentator, Raymond Brown, gives at this point, he, he says... Uh, we live in a world which recognizes the necessity of good communication. In a world of advertising and financial prosperity, businesses pay large money to communicate their exact message. And I think you know, God, with all of the resources at his disposal, how would he choose to ultimately communicate his message To man, I've summarized there in your handout what I think the author of Hebrews is telling us, and that is that the pinnacle of God's revelation, the agent who could communicate ultimately and definitively God's revelation was his son, sent his son to reveal himself and his expectations to humanity. So the prophets spoke God's words to us. Jesus, the Son, is the Word of God. Prophet Ezekiel, for instance, described the glory of God, and the Holy Spirit inspired him to put it in the canon of Scripture. He described the glory of God. Jesus embodied the glory of God. Isaiah saw the holiness of God. You remember Isaiah chapter 6? He saw the holiness of God. He didn't even really know how to communicate it very well. But Jesus lived the holiness of God on this planet perfectly. The prophet Jeremiah speaks about the power and the mercies of God. But Jesus, Jesus did more than talk about it. Jesus showed it. He demonstrated the power of God and the mercies of God throughout his life. And so as we go throughout the rest of verses two through four, then, uh, I want to look at the author's basis for making the statement. But God has revealed, God has revealed himself to us through a son. The author's main point will be the son is a better agent of God's self-disclosure than the prophet's. Well, why does he think that? And that's what I think the rest of the text is doing. From this point on in verses two through four, I think, The author of Hebrews justifies his belief that the Son is a greater agent of God's revelation than prophets by making five statements about the Son. And this is where the trembling begins. Look in your Bible, verse two. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. Okay, then he's going to give us five justifications for why the Son's revelation is greater whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, that's the son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. I give you these five statements from the author of Hebrews. The first one is found in the beginning of verse 2. The son is a greater agent of God's divine revelation because he is the heir of all things. That's what he says in the middle of verse 2. He is, God has appointed him as the heir of all things. The word heir here speaks of one who would receive something that was promised. In this context, what God has promised he would receive the inheritance promised by God. The words here, I think, perhaps are an allusion to a psalm in Psalm number 2 and verse 8. I think he might have Psalm 2, verse 8 in his mind. We won't turn there, but let me just read it to you. In this psalmist, God says that, the, uh, that David or the Davidic king can ask of me and I will make the nations his inheritance and the ends of the earth his possession. So in that psalm, the psalmist speaks of a future king who will inherit the nations. And here the author of Hebrews extends it to beyond the nations to all things. God has appointed him to be the heir of all things. And I I think he can do that because in Psalm 2 and verse 8, he talks about not only being the heir of the nations, but that he promises that he will possess the earth for his inheritance. So in Psalm 2 and verse 8, this future Davidic king will inherit the nations and rule the entire world. I think fulfilling the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that the entire world would be blessed through, the, through their offspring. So the son is greater because he's the heir of all things. And uh, by the way, not to get technical at all, what's all things? Everything. Everything. The entire material universe. The totality of all things existing in time and space. You see, the Son is a better revealer of God because he is the heir of everything. He's the heir of everything. His prestigious inheritance makes him a greater agent than the prophets of God. Now the second statement he'll make about the Son is the Son is greater because He is the Creator. This is in verse 2 as well, so look a little farther down. Through whom also He created the world. The prophets of Israel could only speak of creation from a distance. Christ, the Son, however, was active in creation. He was the instrument of God to create everything in this universe. If you're looking close at the end of this this phrase, through whom he also created the world, the word world here is a different word than we normally use for world. It could be translated often ages. I think it's a word that includes time, space, and the universe with all of its contents. So Christ made everything. In fact, everything that we try to make is made up of stuff that he originally made. Sometimes when we think we're we're really creative and uh, imaginative or powerful and we do something like human cloning, it's still made from stuff that originally God created. So the author of Hebrews is declaring here that Christ is greater because he was not only present at creation, he was the agent of creation. No human person, power, or profit for that matter can compete with that. It was active in creation. I want to illustrate Christ's power as creator by comparing it to the power of humanity for just a moment. I'll give you two illustrations here. Arguably the greatest human power-producing invention of all time is the nuclear power plant. The nuclear power plant can can, uh, produce about 1,100,000,000 watts of energy The sun is one star of, what, trillions? If you're a scientist, you can fix my math on that later. The sun, one star among trillions, produces 380 trillion trillion watts of energy in every direction. Only one half of a billionth of that energy from the sun intersects earth Yet in ten minutes, the earth receives more energy from the sun than we have been able to produce as humanity in our entire existence. We boast about the nuclear power plant. That's nothing compared to what God has created in the sun. We are impotent compared to the one who spoke the sun into existence. And that creator, the sun, was God's special means of revelation. I want you to consider another example here. Cambridge physicist Stephen Hawking, who's been called the most brilliant theoretical physicist since Einstein, says in his best-selling book A Brief History of Time that our galaxy is an average-sized spiral galaxy that looks to other galaxies like a swirl in a pastry roll and that is over 100 1,000 light-years across. That's about 600 trillion miles from one edge of our galaxy to the other. He says we know that our galaxy is only one of some hundred thousand million galaxies that can be seen by using modern telescopes. Each galaxy itself contains some hundred thousand million stars. It's commonly held that the average distance between these 100,000 million galaxies is 3 million light-years between them. On top of that, all red-spectrum galaxies, Hawking says, are moving away from us. Thus, the universe is constantly expanding. Some of these galaxies might be moving away from us at the speed of 200 million miles an hour. Men and women, the sun... Of God made every molecule. He brought every molecule into existence. I think he is qualified to tell us about God, right? If he is the agent of creation, he is a great agent of God's revelation, self-revelation to us. And so, uh, what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's just talking about the fact that the sun is incomparable. I mean, you can't compare any human being to him. He says the sun is the heir of all things. Number two, the sun is the creator. And then number three, the sun reveals the true image of God. That's why I take verse three. Look at verse three. It says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Wants want to look at these two phrases for a moment. First, he says he's the brightness of his glory or the radiance of his glory the word radiance is used here as two possible meanings. Uh, and just again, I think the two possible meanings can be uh, described very simply. The word that stands behind this could either be describing Jesus as one who reflects the glory of God or one who radiates God's glory. Okay? The difference between them would be like the difference between the sun and the moon. Okay? One, the moon, reflects the glory of God, the other, the sun, radiates glory, its own glory. And so as we go through this text, really I think either view is okay, okay, in that either this is a description of the humanity of Jesus and what he did in glorifying the Father and radiating God's glory to humanity, or this is a statement of the deity of Jesus Christ, he's radiating God's glory himself. We could go different ways on this. I I would think that at least this first phrase is talking about the humanity of Jesus. Jesus as a better agent of revelation, revealing the glory of the Father. He's reflecting the glory of the Father. I use John 17, verse 5. In the high priestly prayer of Jesus, where he prays to the Father, he says, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with, with the glory that I had with you before the world was. So in John chapter 17, a high priestly prayer of Jesus, Jesus prays that God would allow him to radiate the glory of God like he did originally. So in his humanity, I think this is a description in Hebrews 1 here in verse 3 of the fact that Jesus radiates or reflects the glory of God uh, throughout his ministry. There are clear statements of Jesus' deity throughout the text, and, and, and I think the next one is one of those, next phrase. It's the second he is the imprint of God's nature, the exact imprint of God's nature. The word imprint means that the sun is the exact representation or display of God's nature. The word imprint was the word that would describe um, this, a, a, an imprint that would stamp a coin. Here the sun is the exact representation of of God's nature or God's being. The word nature speaks of the underlying existence or essence of something. So the Son is the imprint of the very being of God. Like how some theologians described this, one, one theologian described it this way. He said, God and the Son share the same imprint of being. Another said it this way, he says, the Son fully shares the divine nature of God. As a matter of fact, years after this was written, uh, the Nicene fathers found basis in verse 3 here alone for their position that everything that God is, the Son is also. This is a statement of the deity of Jesus Christ. He is the exact imprint of Of God's being remember what Philip said in uh, John 14 that we read earlier today Philip said to Jesus Lord show us the father and that's enough for us Jesus said to him have I been with you so long and you still don't know me Philip whoever has seen me has seen the father Christ himself claimed to represent God if someone wanted to see God, His essential being, all they needed to do was look at Jesus the Son. He's the imprint of God's very being. I love how Colossians 2 and verse 9 says this, Paul the Apostle, Colossians 2 9, he says, For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. For in Christ, All the fullness of God lives in bodily form. So men and women, the Son is a greater agent of God's self-revelation because he reveals the true image of God. He's the heir of all things, the creator, and he reveals the true image of God. But then we go down to the middle part of verse 3 and we learn number 4, the Son is also the sustainer of the entire universe. It says there, and he upholds the universe by the word of its power. Here the sun sustains everything in this world by his powerful word. He not only sustains life and breath and seasons, he keeps planets in their orbits by his authoritative word. He simply speaks it and it's done. I think this is an echo of creation. He spoke it into existence, and through a word, he sustains it all through his powerful word. We had already learned that the Son was the creator of all things, the entire universe. Now we learn that he's sustaining everything as well. And here I, I just would encourage you to write down another text. Write down Colossians 1, 16 and 17, and I'll read it for you. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, which says this well. It says, for by him, that's Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities and powers, all things were created by him, that's the Son, and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things, what? Hold Consist, exist, hold together. He is the one who is directing all of the affairs of providence. He is the one holding all things together. Consequently, what Jesus revealed to us about God should be very important to us. Perhaps there's nothing more important for the child of God today than to recover the deep sense of awe and respect that we should have toward God's self-revelation to us as human beings through his son, Jesus Christ, who created the world and sustains it by one powerful word. If there was one gift that I could wrap up and give to you today as a preacher and give to you It would be that you would get a grander, loftier, higher view of the significance of Jesus Christ. That you would hear it in this ancient text, and you would be stunned, and you walk out of here staggering at the fact that the one who spoke it all into existence also came and revealed God to us. That would be the gift I would give you and give myself. The Son is a greater agent of revelation than the prophets. He sustains the universe with a word. Then, in the middle of verse 3 through verse 4, I I think there's a fifth statement that he makes about the Son that argues that he's a greater agent of God's self-revelation. That is, uh, this is me summarizing the end of verse 3 and verse 4. The Son... Is greater than the prophets, because he sits at God's right hand. He sits at God's right hand. Look at look at the middle of verse three. After making purification for sins, and here's the main clause here, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels, then the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The author's final reason why the Son is a greater agent of God's revelation than prophets is that He sits enthroned at God's right hand in heaven. I, I want to just look at each one of these words for just a little bit. Uh, first, the seed is at the right hand. This, of course, was a seed of highest honor and authority. The Son has a seat at the right hand. Well, the Son received the high honor sitting at the right hand hand of what the text says the majesty the majesty i wish you could read this in the original this is just beautiful in the way it's written he could have said he's seated at the right hand of god but he uses a very descriptive term to describe who he's sitting next to the majesty the one who's great he's sitting at the right hand of greatness you might say if the author is not done here in describing his position his seat Next to God, the majestic one, is on high. See that in your Bible? It's this amazing phrase in English, and I, th- I think it reflects a, a tremendous thought in Greek. It's, it's on high. Instead of saying uh, the seat is in heaven, the author describes his seat in the heights, it could be translated. I think to emphasize that the sun has been exalted, he's been lifted high. So I go through my Septuagint scripture and I look for this phrase, uh, uh, on high, I see it often to describe the status of God, the creator, as being above all the creatures. You could write down Psalm 112 in verse 5 where the psalmist asks this question, he says, who is like our God who dwells on high? And a point of that question, this statement, is that there is no one who can compare to the creator God. He is transcendent, and now because of Jesus' perfect work and life, he has been exalted to sit at the right hand of the majesty in the heights, completely above us. The rest of verses 3 and 4, I think, give us two reasons why the Lord is now sitting in heaven. Reason one, he sits there because he overcame sin. That's the part of verse three there. After making purification for sins, he sat down. Christ's death brought about the effect of the cleansing of sins. In Hebrews, the word sin often speaks of defilement or blot, which renders human beings unclean or impure, and purification is necessary. And Hebrews makes it clear the only thing that could purify would be the blood of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 9 and 10, I think these, these ideas are developed further, but the reason Jesus can sit at the right hand of the majesty on high is because he overcame sin. It's done. It's completed. The second reason he gives is verse 4. The son sits there because he's greater than angels. He's greater than angels. Angels presently, perhaps, are in different places in this world, if they're located in heaven, we know what they're doing in heaven, right? They're around the throne, around the throne worshiping, but their place is not to sit at the right hand of God. That's the place of the Son. When the author of Hebrews is saying that, what he's saying is that by virtue of the Son's finished work, he has become so much better than the angels. The author of Hebrews makes one more point in this verse, and that is to point out the superiority of the Son at the end of verse 4. He says, uh, Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Here in this comparison of names, we could get into this description. Um, there's, There's much speculation as to what name Jesus inherited after his earthly ministry upon his exaltation or enthronement in heaven. Many people believe that the name he inherits here is the name son. And by that they don't mean that this is the first time he's ever called son, but at this time God recognizes him to be son at his exaltation when he's sitting at the right hand of majesty on high. I go against that, however, and I go a different way. Uh, I think there's a better way to look at this, and I think that the name that he inherits here is Lord. Is Lord. In just a few verses, the author of Hebrews is going to quote from a psalm, Psalm 110, verse 1. And in that psalm, David addresses his Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. I think the name could be Lord here. Seems to me that other people saw it this way as well. I think of the Apostle Paul and what he said about the name of Jesus in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. You remember this passage? It says, Wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he's Lord. That's the name that God gives to Jesus at his exaltation. He's Lord. He's the sovereign one. He's the one who rules. I think Peter Simon Peter had this drilled into his thinking so that when he's standing at Pentecost and preaching the word, he comes to his conclusion in Acts 2.36. He says, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified." Peter wants it to be very clear that God made the Son Lord. It's part of Peter's theology. matter of fact, I think the early Christians confessed this as well. This is one of the earliest Christian confessions. Jesus is kurios. He's Lord, not Caesar. Jesus is Lord. I think as a response to Jesus' heavenly ascension and exaltation, believers begin to say this. This title, Lord, also seems to make... Uh, be most appropriate since this passage for the most part in Hebrews 1 has been about the Son ruling with God on on high. He's Lord. Indeed, His name is more glorious than angelic beings. His position is more glorious than angelic beings. The Son conveys God's self-revelation to us clearly, definitively, and ultimately. Ultimately. So, we must value what he did and said. A few moments of application. I, I, at the bottom of your handout there, I just ask you, so what do we do with this? I mean, how should this impact us? I hope that I've accented the argument of the author of Hebrews that Jesus is a greater agent of revelation than the prophets. But what do we do with this? Well, the primary message that Jesus revealed was the gospel, of Jesus Christ. And so I think the first thing we do is we, we need to continue and grow in our love for the gospel. I like what Stephen Lawson said. He said, uh, the gospel is what it is because Jesus is who he is. So what do I do with the fact that he's the son of God, he's the creator, he sustains everything by the word of his power and that he revealed to us who God is. I say you should value the gospel, the message that he proclaimed to us. You should love it. As I said before, if I could give you any gift today, it would be to give you a grander, deeper, greater view of the supremacy of Christ. And so I ask, second application, have you always chosen Jesus throughout the week? We've been put in positions this week where we had to either choose Jesus or anger. And many of us failed and we chose anger. We're put in positions this week where we had to choose either Jesus or lust. Many of us chose lust instead of Jesus. Positions where you're either going to have to choose Jesus and the fact that he is better or choose gossip and slander. Either choose Jesus or bitterness and an unforgiving spirit. You choose Jesus or other authorities or pursuits. In your life, will you choose that Jesus is better? He's God's agent of self-revelation to us. He's better. We should choose him every time. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this lofty passage that compares Jesus to prophets. Lord, what a comparison. It's staggering. It's shocking when we consider that Jesus is the creator spoke everything into existence through one word. It's shocking when we consider that through his powerful word, he sustains everything in this universe. These are amazing things, dear Father, and they're, they're hard for us to truly comprehend and understand and let alone appreciate and believe. But he's greater because he is the exact imprint or representation of the being of God. Or no human being can compare. To any person in the room, Father, who might be considering walking away from Jesus, I, I pray that they would see today that no other voice, no other words are as important as the words from the Son. If they are tempted to listen to the words of a friend or a wise person, a wise one who tells them how to run their life or live their life, and it contradicts the words of Jesus, I pray that they would see they must obey the words of the Son. Father, if there are some in this room today who are considering adding the words of some other religious person or religious institution to the words of Jesus, I'd, I'd hope that they would see that it, it doesn't even compare. Father, if there would be some in our congregation who would be tempted at some point to believe in the words of Joseph Smith and bring them on a parallel plane with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, I pray that they would be rebuked, I pray that they would not do this, that they would not walk away from the beauty and the splendor of the words from the Son. There's some within our congregation, Lord, to be tempted to believe the words of the prophet Muhammad. Prophet Muhammad instead of Jesus Christ. I pray that as they compare those words, they'd see that Jesus Christ is the Lord. He's the Son of God, and it's upon his words that they must live their life. Father, perhaps there's some of us who are tempted to live in response to the wisdom of this world that we hear from friends and acquaintances at work or at the school. They have a certain way of looking at things, a certain way of doing things. It talks about self-rights and self-justification. It talks about getting what we can. I pray, dear Father, that that we as believers would, uh, would compare those words to the words of Jesus and that we would see he is better and he is for the glory of his Father as we should be for the glory of his Father. Or maybe the words of Jesus, would it be our ultimate authority, we pray as well. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.